So this is the last week of our series on the end times. And, and Charlene told me, she said, Jeff, you can't start every message by saying this is one of the most controversial subjects in the entire Bible. She said it can't be that every week. And so, you know, I don't want to be accused of trying to be sensationalist, which is why today I'm just going to say that we're going to be talking about the most politically incorrect story in the entire Bible. So that's what we're going to be doing today. It's very, very politically incorrect. It's so politically incorrect that I'm going to need to ask you a favor. And the favor I'm going to ask you is just to hear the whole message. If you're wildly offended, please stay till the end because otherwise you won't have the complete picture of where we're going. It'll be like a soundbite, and I think we all know that if somebody clipped uh, soundbites from our life, uh, they could make us look pretty terrible, which may be accurate in most of our cases. But anyway, the point is we wouldn't want them to do that. But now I've got you interested. I've got you hooked right now. So throughout this series, we've been mentioning the words of Jesus from what's known as the Olivet Discourse. You can find it in places like Luke 17 and Matthew 24 in your Bibles. And it's a section of the Bible where Jesus answers his disciples' specific questions about what the signs would be that would indicate the nearness of Jesus' return. They were saying, when are you going to come back again? What are going to be the signs that will let us know you're coming back? What will be the signs that will allow us to say Jesus is coming back any day now? And that's what Jesus shares in the Olivet Discourse. And here's a a look at part of what we shared last week from Luke 17. Jesus said, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, just the same way, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus gives us two specific places to look, two specific references. He says the days of Noah, and he says the days of Lot. And he says it's going to be just like this right before I come back again. It's really important to notice he could have said anybody. He could have said the days of Isaiah, the days of Daniel, the days of David, the days of Adam. Could have said any of that, days of Elijah. And then everyone would have burst out in a song from uh, about 20 years ago. But he doesn't say that. He says the days of Lot... And the days of Noah. He's very specific. And so in what way will it be like that? Well, he actually tells us. He says he wants us to notice that in both stories, life was going on as normal all the way up to the point their world came tumbling down. That's what he wants us to notice. He says, listen, in both the days of Noah and the days of Lot, it was just an ordinary day from the perspective of most people. All the way up to the point it started raining and flooding all the way up to the point it started raining fire and brimstone from heaven. That's what Jesus wants us to know. And he says in the same way, before he comes back again, it's going to be business as usual in a very unusual time. You can read about the days of Lot. You can read about the days of Noah. Everyone thought it was normal, but when you look at it from the outside, you're able to say this is a very unusual time. And that's the idea Jesus wants to give us. He wants us to look for business as usual in a very unusual time. He says it's going to be like that right before he comes back again. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 18. This is an easy one, so we can all look like we know how to find our way around the Bible. Genesis is the first book. Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis 18, three men show up 
before an old man named Abraham. Abraham has a wife whose name is Sarah. She's also old. They have no children. If you read the story, you'll find that the three men are actually two angels and Jesus. Jesus actually shows up. And they show up and tell Abraham that he's going to have a son, which was miraculous because he and his wife were old. 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 Okay? So they were amazed when these men showed up and said, listen, you're going to have a kid. It's going to happen. The Lord, Jesus, also shares with Abraham that he is aware of the wickedness in these cities called Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says he's going to visit these cities and judge them. Abraham has a nephew named Lot who is living in the city of Sodom, and he knows what's going on in Sodom. Abraham says, listen, if you go check this out, you're going to destroy the cities. I know what's going on there. And so Abraham tries to reason with Jesus, who's literally right in front of him, and tries to say, please don't do that. Please take care of my nephew Lot and his family. And they have this very, very interesting conversation that we're going to read in a moment, starting in verse 20. And here's what you need to know. Jesus doesn't need to investigate anything. He already knows. He is causing events to unfold in this way so that we'll be able to read the narrative. It's not like Jesus is like, I can't see from heaven, so I need to come down and get a better view. That's not really what's going on. He's allowing us insight into the story here. Let's begin in verse 20. It says, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, you might want to underline or highlight that, their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So whatever's going on in Sodom is categorized as sin by Jesus himself. Their sin includes all kinds of behavior, but the Bible chooses to highlight a specific sin in the next chapter. The Lord considers what's going on in Sodom to be very grave sin. That's your first fill-in. He considers it to be very grave sin. That's God speaking directly. And then in verse 22, it says, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. That's these two angels. But Abraham stood before the Lord. So they go off. Abraham stays and talks to Jesus. And Abraham came near and said, you might want to underline, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham is asking God, is is this the way you operate, that you'll destroy the righteous along with the wicked when you judge people? It's a big question as it relates to the end times. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? And then underline verse 25, pretty much the whole thing. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Are you picking up on the theme here? So that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, "Let, let not the Lord be angry and I'll speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. 
Abraham should have been a used car salesman. I mean, this guy is good. It's a really, really interesting interaction. And I just want to point out again, the Bible tells us specifically that God is not a man that he should change his mind. So God isn't changing his mind. What God is doing is he's allowing this interaction with Abraham to happen so that we can understand something. And I believe there's really only one point to this entire interaction between Abraham and God. And the entire point is to show us God's heart for his people. You want to write that down. To show us just how much he values every believer, even in a city full of people who hate the Lord. That's the entire point you need to get from this. And Jesus, don't forget as we go through this, Jesus has told us it'll be as it was in the days of Lot. This is where Jesus is directing us to look at, to understand how the end times are going to work and how his reappearing is going to work. We're going to find out that there won't even be 10 righteous people found in the city. But God will save the few believers that are there. Did you also notice that Abraham quit asking before the Lord quit giving? Just an interesting little side note. We're going to find out that God's plan is not to spare the city, but to save the believers, to save the believers. Lot is a really interesting study in Scripture, and the reason we're looking at it is Jesus says it will be as it was in the days of Lot. Lot only gets one chapter in the Bible. So do you think it might be worth finding out what it says? That's what we're going to do today. The days of Lot only really get one chapter chapter the main narrative in genesis at this point is all about abraham it's all about abraham and if you've read genesis you know it takes this really bizarre left turn to tell us the story in chapter 19 about lot and sodom it's really out of place in terms of the whole main story of genesis makes this side turn and then it gets back on track with abraham it's really odd until you understand that it's there because thousands of years later, Jesus would personally reference that one chapter. I really believe that's the only reason that story is there is so that in the Olivet Discourse, thousands of years later, Jesus could say, it'll be as it was in the days of Lot. Where is that? Genesis 19. Go and read it. Check it out. So Jesus points us to the days of Lot. And we're going to start in Genesis 19, verse 1. One of the most politically incorrect portions of Scripture in the whole Bible. If you're a Christian, you've read it. At a minimum, you've probably thought, that's just a weird story. Just a weird story. And let's see if we can shed some light on it, knowing now that it's really there so that Jesus could use it as a sign, as an illustration of what the end times are going to be like. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. You might want to line, sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Did you notice that the three men that were in chapter 18 are now two men? It's just the two angels. Jesus doesn't actually enter the city of Sodom. When this is taking place, the cross hasn't happened. Jesus' blood has not been shed to make atonement for sin. Were Jesus to enter the city of Sodom, he would basically have to blow it up right there on the spot because his holiness is that intense. He would have been compelled to judge it right away because he's that holy. So he sends the angels in. Jesus doesn't actually enter the city of Sodom. The fact that Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom means that he was considered a leader in the city and part of the political system. That's where the men of influence would come to meet and talk and do business was the gate of the city. It means that Lot was a man of prominence, and as we know from earlier in Genesis, he was blessed with wealth. It also tells us that Lot, write this down, had integrated into the culture of his city. We're going to find out that while he was a believer, he and his family were immersed in the culture of Sodom. 
Genesis tells us that Lot first saw Sodom and Gomorrah from a distance, thought it looked good. Then he pitched his tent a little bit closer, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. At this point, he's moved into the city and immersed himself in the culture of the city. That's the progression. Write this down. In this story, Lot is a picture of the believer. He's a picture of the believer. We're going to find out that he's a very messed up believer, but a believer nonetheless. I think most of us can say amen to that. He and most of his family and his household are the only believers in the city. His household represents the only believers in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot recognizes that these two men are angels. He sees it right away. He can discern that they're angels, but nobody else does. Nobody else recognizes them as angels. None of the unbelievers in the city are going to recognize them as messengers from God. In verse 2, And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we'll spend the night in the open square. We'll just sleep in the square of the city. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he, underline he, made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. We're going to find out that Lot insists that the angels spend the night at his house because he knows something about his city. He knows that they do not want to be out in the town square at night, and we're going to find out why. Did you notice that Lot made the meal? We don't think it's a big deal now, but in that time, in that culture, that was very strange that Lot would have made the meal. Typically, it would have been the wife, and we'll come back to that. Now remember, Jesus said it's going to be just like this. We're going to go through this, and you discern if there might be something here. Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, underline that, and then underline both old and young, All the people, and then underlined, from every quarter, surrounded the house. Apparently, this sin is being taught to the children as normal behavior, and it's widespread. Because the children are right there. They're a part of it. The narrative goes out of its way to let us know it's not just the men, it's the old and the young men of the city. So this is being taught to them as normal behavior, and it's widespread. In verse 5 it says, And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. That's not code for we want to buy them a beer and welcome them to our fair city and discuss matters of culture and politics. To be blunt, if you're not reading between the lines, they want to rape them. That's what they want to do. So clearly, homosexuality is practiced openly and is acceptable in their culture. It's practiced openly, and it's acceptable in their culture. And I think it's interesting that they don't expect to encounter any resistance, even from the household of the believer. It's just assumed that the believer is going to be on board with this, just like everybody else. And we'll see what happens when the believer is forced into a situation where he has to reveal that he's not on board with this. Verse 6, so Lot went out to them through the doorway, underline doorway, shut the door behind him, underline door. And in terms of our end time study, if you haven't been picking up on this, the, the term door is really, really important as it pertains to the rapture. The door is always, in all of these end times passages, a picture of what divides the believer being in the place of safety from the believer being being with the unbeliever in the place of destruction. Just like in Revelation 4.1, just like in Isaiah 26 that we talked about last week. 
So Lot goes out through the door. He goes out to speak to them. Verse 7, and said, and then underline this, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. You probably noticed that Lot was calling what they were proposing wicked, but did you notice how he addressed them? He spoke to them kindly. He began with please. And what did he call them? He called them brethren. He called them brothers, called them friends. That's right. So so let me ask you, is Lot putting himself above them? Is Lot speaking unkindly? Is Lot being hateful towards them? Is Lot mistreating them? Is Lot trampling on their rights and freedoms? Is he doing any of those things? Lot is embodying the axiom, hate the sin, love the sinner. That's what he's doing. He's calling them brothers. He's calling them friends. And he's saying, please don't do that in my house. He's being loving and kind towards them, but he's refusing to agree with what they're doing. Let's find out if that's good enough for them or not. So Lot comes up with a solution that is, it's awful. And we'll explain it right after we read it. Verse 8, Lot says, See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of, and then underline, my roof. Let's just acknowledge this is a really weird solution from Lot, right? This is a really weird solution. Rape my daughters instead. So Lot is a picture of the believer, but I think we can accurately say he's got a pretty messed up idea of what it means to represent God. He's a little confused about what's appropriate. He's become a part of the city and the culture, so he's messed up. He's jacked up. But there's still lines that he understands he shouldn't be crossing. So it could be a couple of things are going on. One, it could be he's so desperate to earn the favor of these angels that he'll do something stupid, like send his own daughters out in order to protect them. It could be that Lot is just an absolute idiot, and this really is his best idea. Because it doesn't even occur to him to ask for help from the two angels in his house, right? I mean, that would be the logical thing to do. Hey, you have the power of God. Could you maybe go out and do something about this, being that you can walk through walls and such? Maybe you could help me out a little bit here. But I think what is most likely, what's really going on, is that this idea actually comes from God, and I'll tell you why. Because we're going to find out that nobody touches Lot's daughters. Nobody messes with them at all. And all this does in the purpose of the narrative is underscore the fact that the men of Sodom have no interest in women. They have no interest in women. Just in case we're still confused about what's going on here. It's a really weird way to lay it out, but we're left with one inevitable conclusion. They they are not interested. They're not interested in women. So notice what Lot says. Lot says, do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. I had you underline my roof. He's asking the men of the city to respect the fact that, that these men are under his roof. They're in his house. And he knows that they don't want to participate in what these guys are doing. Lot is only asking the men of Sodom to respect his right to a different viewpoint in his own home. In his own home. That's what he's asking for. All he's asking them is, please respect my personal space in my own home. Please allow us to hold to our own values in our own home. Did you notice that they they came to his house? This conversation isn't taking place because Lot's holding up a protest sign. They came to his house. Lot isn't posting hateful speech on Facebook. He's just asking to be allowed to hold to his religious values in, in his own home. 
Let's find out if his appeal will be heard. In verse 9, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one, they're talking to each other about Lot, came in here to stay. And he keeps acting as a judge. Underline, acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. Remember, they've come to Lot's house. He hasn't gone to their houses. They've come to him. What do they accuse him of? I had you underline, acting as a judge. What are they accusing him of? They're accusing him of being judgmental. They're accusing him of the greatest modern sin of them all, right? Being intolerant. That is the greatest sin you can commit in our society today. They're accusing him of being intolerant. They're saying, you're the one who chose to live here. You're the one who chose to be a part of this culture, this society. And this is just something you better get on board with if you want to be one of us, if you want to be part of this culture. So now they're threatening to rape Lot. They're trying to force him and his household to participate in their sin. They're right outside the door trying to break it down and get into the household of the believer. So what happens next? Verse 10. But the men, the two angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Underline that. Pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. There again is the believer being pulled inside to the place of safety and the door being closed behind him. Verse 11, and they, the angels, underlined, struck, struck the men of the city who were at the doorway of the house with blindness and then underlined both small and great so that they became weary trying to find the door. This next part here, I really have to read it to you to read between the lines because what it's saying is potentially so controversial. So it's going to point out what this is saying and, and you decide for yourself if there's something here or not. As a result of their sin, a very specific sin, these men are struck with a physical infirmity. It affects both the young and the old. And many Bible scholars believe this is what Paul is referring to in Romans when he writes this. Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their woman exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. You know, God is always working to draw us to him, but but multiple times in Scripture, we see a very, very troubling thing. We see God essentially say, there is a point when you reject me so many times, you don't want to hear me so many times that eventually I'll say, okay, you don't want to hear me? I will make it so that you can't hear me. And your opportunity is over. It's what we see happen with Pharaoh in, in the Exodus story when he just ignores the appeal of God coming through Moses so many times that God says, that's enough. Now you won't be able to hear me. And it's sad because the Bible says no man can come to know Jesus unless the Holy Spirit draws him to Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit says we're done, there's no hope for that person. And God says there are a group of people involved with this sin that I've been calling out to and they have said no so many times that we're done. We're done. It's really, really heavy thought. It's heartbreaking. And, and here's what's heartbreaking too. You'll notice in this Genesis story, the affliction they're struck with, it doesn't make them repent. It doesn't make them repent. 
It doesn't make them question their actions. In fact, they double down on their sin. And it says they exhausted themselves trying to find the door to get in. They just keep going. It doesn't make them stop. If you're not picking up on it, there's a militancy to this group's desire to get into the household of the believer. There's a militancy to it. It is a mission for them. Jesus says it's going to be just like that right before I come in. They're going to be trying to break down the door to get into the household of the believer. And so my question is simple. My question is, are there perhaps some uncanny similarities between the days of Lot and the days that you and I are living in? You know, I'm fascinated by how values become a part of a society. Uh, what I mean by this is with something like World War II, what fascinates me the most is, is, is how does a country of ordinary people suddenly get used to the idea of going through everyday life while people are being murdered left, right, and center for their ethnicity? How does that happen to what was a normal group of people a, a decade before? How does that happen? Uh, while researching this, one of the things I learned is I learned that there is a way to change an entire culture's perspective on any issue you want in just one generation. You can do it in one generation if you can do one thing. If you can get your message into the educational system, you can change it in one generation. Twelve years, just one generation going through will come out the other side indoctrinated, for lack of a better term, brainwashed. So, so if you want to push a specific agenda, your wisest course of action, get into the educational system. Then you do a couple of other things as well. If you can get people to laugh at any issue, then the issue loses its seriousness. So you need to get people to laugh at whatever issue you're hoping to break down their walls on. Make TV comedies about it. Make jokes about it. People will start to become less defensive. Get it in the educational system. 12 years, you have a complete turnaround in how people view that issue any issue you want to change any issue you want to change and so you know in in places like uh the state of california right now they are working very hard you have a lot of lgbt groups that are working very hard to outlaw homeschooling and and at first you hear that and you go no okay now why would the gay lesbian alliance be interested in outlawing homeschooling And you realize why. Well, because they can't indoctrinate everybody if everybody's not in the public education system. So they have to get everybody into the public education system where they can teach your children, if you hold any other view, you're a bigot and you're intolerant. That's what they need to do. So if you have kids in our public school system, you know this is definitely taught to the young in our society. Definitely. Go look at the list of required reading from kindergarten to graduation. Nothing is there by accident. It's very, very intentional. You know, in our society, it it doesn't matter how kindly or respectfully you treat those in this lifestyle. You're a bigot if you don't celebrate and agree with the lifestyle. You're not allowed to love the sinner and hate the sin. That's not good enough. Uh, That's intolerant. You see, tolerance used to mean we can disagree about an issue as long as it doesn't cause either of us to mistreat each other. See, we can't disagree about slavery because you're mistreating the other person. So you can't be tolerant in that area. Where there is tolerance, though, is where you can say, listen, we can both treat each other with respect and value and love and kindness while still holding different views. In this area, we can do that. We can do that. No, nobody is saying, hey, you shouldn't receive medical attention. Hey, you should have less human rights. We're just saying we disagree with your behavior. But that's not good enough. If you hold a different view, now you're intolerant. Are you catching the irony in that? 
if you hold any different view to this view, you are the one who's intolerant. It's a literal logical fallacy, but I think we all know that's the reality of the culture that we're living in right now. It's not enough to show respect. You have to celebrate and agree with the lifestyle. I would argue that you almost have to view it in our culture as a higher form of sexuality than heterosexuality. It's something that should be celebrated. It's extra special. And I I don't think I'm inflaming the reality of the situation at all. You know that if you work for the Vancouver Fire Department, you are required, required to participate in the Gay Pride Parade. You're required to do it. You're not just required to keep your mouth shut. You're required to celebrate it. You can hold a different view. It'll just also cost you your job. That's, that's where we live right now. If you want to work for the Vancouver Fire Department, you've got to drive the truck in the rally. You've got to be there showing your support. You can't just even silently and respectfully disagree. In the story of Lot, we see the men of the city go to Lot's house and accuse him in his own house of being judgmental. So the goal is to force him and his household to participate in their lifestyle. They don't believe he should be allowed to hold a different view, even in his own home, in private. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Then the men, this is the two angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The angels are telling Lot, this is the last call. This is the last call. This is not the warning that is going to spark a political revolution, a societal revolution, a massive spiritual revival. This is the last call. Grab whoever you can and get out because judgment's coming. That's what they're saying. Verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, underline, he seemed to be joking. Seem to be joking. Here's what you notice. Apparently Lot's lifestyle, his way of living, had left him with no spiritual credibility, even within his own family. So when he begins to speak about very serious spiritual matters, his own sons-in-law don't take him seriously. They think he must be joking. It also tells us that his sons-in-law are not believers. They're not believers. So Lot is so immersed in the culture, he's allowing his kids to marry non-believers. Because he thinks it's just not a big deal. Because he's been caught up in the culture. He's been blinded by the culture. And the result of this is that Lot's faith doesn't make it all the way to the next generation. It doesn't make it. He was too lukewarm. He was too half-hearted. It's also important that, that this detail is here just to let us know not everyone is engaged in this sin in Sodom. There's still unbelievers who are heterosexual as well just to let us know that not everyone's involved in this specific sin. But there's something that here that we also see in the days of Noah. You know, everyone thought it was a joke when Noah was telling them, guys, God's judgment is coming. God says it's going to be like that. You know, even teaching this series, as the guy teaching this series, I'm incredibly nervous teaching this. You, you know why? Because I know, I know there are people who are going to hear this, and the first thought they have of me in their head is like the long beard and like the placard standing on the street corner yelling, the end is near, right? That's like the first picture that comes up. And there's a reason why most churches don't ever talk about the end times. Because the general response is the same as Noah got. It's the same as Lot got. Everyone just says, listen, 
you're a sensationalist. You're being an alarmist. Everything goes on just the way it always has. Everybody thought their generation was the last generation. And so most pastors honestly just say, why, why bother? Why bother with that, you know? Lot's own family doesn't take him seriously. Everyone around Noah thinks he's a joke as he builds the boat. And this is what Jesus pointed out when he said, listen, they're going to think it's just another day. They're going to miss the signs that are right in front of their noses. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here. There's only four of them now. Lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, while Lot lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out, underline that, they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside. Did you catch the emphasis there? It's repeating itself. Anytime the Bible repeats itself in close proximity, it's emphasizing a point that we're supposed to notice. God wants us to notice that they are being brought outside the city, away from the destruction. Verse 17. So it came to pass when they had, been br- when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please, no, my lords. Indeed, now, he says it in kind of a whiny tone, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, and you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this little city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. I don't know about you, but uh, Lot's kind of a moron because if you're not picking up on this, Lot is complaining about the manner in which he is being saved from death by two angels. He's like, the mountains? Seriously? Ah, can we just go there to that little city? That city's fine. On, on a quick practical note, this is what we do when we say things about the rapture like, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I get married. Or, you know... I hope Jesus doesn't come back soon. Like, I really want to go to Bali. It's like, we, we just do not understand that we're like being Eeyore, and we have no idea that, that when the rapture happens, every believer will be going to the presence of God to something that cannot even be compared in terms of pleasure and euphoria to any experience you are capable of having in this body. The level of enjoyment we're going to have in the presence of God would destroy this body. It's that intense and that awesome. Yes, single Christian, it's even better than sex. Because I know you're thinking that, okay? It's even better. So don't be like Lot and be like... I hope Jesus doesn't rapture me before I get married. I'll spend eternity thinking, man, I sure missed out on the good stuff. <laughs> Don't be like Lot. You're, you're not going to miss out on anything. I promise. I promise. So verse 21, this is Lot talking. And he said to him, the angel, I'm sorry, said, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. He says, you can go to that little city. Hurry, escape there. And then underline this. This is huge. Remember, Jesus said it'll be just like this. The angel says, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. This is huge. Write this down. The believer has to reach the place of safety before wrath can come down. The believer has to reach the place of safety 
before wrath can come down. Jesus said it'll be like that. When you study scripture, you know, you, you have to look at the whole Bible. And the reason that's important is because you need to become familiar with the character of God that is demonstrated in scripture. And once you understand the character of God, you're going to have a much better way of viewing all of scripture. You know, if you came from a very legalistic background, maybe you're old school Pentecostal, maybe you're raised Catholic, you might have a very hard time learning to view God as a loving father because you, you might have been raised to view him more as a strict disciplinarian. You know, he only gets off his throne to throw lightning bolts at you and punish you when you cuss, when you stub your toe. It, it might take you years, even though you know that that's not really who God is. It can still take you years to change the way that you see God as being a loving father. It can take a long time for you to discover for yourself who he is through his word Because for many of us, who God is is just what we've heard from other people. We haven't really known him for ourselves. And what I notice about the character of God in Scripture is that God never allows his people to be harmed as collateral damage when he rains down judgment or wrath on the earth. Never. Not even in the Old Testament where we all think like God was angry or something. Even there, God always removes the believer before he judges. He doesn't ever tell the believer, that's just your bad luck, you live in Sodom. It's the way it is. He always gets the believer to the place of safety. He does it with Noah's family. He does it with Lot's family, even though they don't really deserve it. He does it with Rahab and the walls of Jericho. You remember that story? The city falls down, one thing is left standing, Rahab's household and everyone who is in it. He never, ever, in all of the Bible, allows the believer to be judged along with the unbeliever, ever. And that's huge when somebody tells you, hey, listen, the tribulation that's coming, we're going to be here for that. God never does that, ever in Scripture, ever. And that's how you know. There's no demonstration of that. But what does God's Word say? Because I know there's different views on this, but what does God's Word say? Revelation 4.1 I saw a door open in heaven, heard a voice say to me, come up here. Church leaves the earth, Revelation 6, 16, then wrath comes down. Church is always in the place of safety before God pours out his wrath in judgment. That's how God has always done it. Verse 23, it says, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Write this down. Lot's wife lived in the household of the believer, but she wasn't saved. On that day, her true heart was revealed because she looked back to grieve over the loss of her city. The city and the culture had her affections. She loved the wrong thing. She wasn't saved. Lot lingered because he wanted to save more people. Lot's wife lingered because she loved living in Sodom. Don't look back. You're you're not going that way. Speaking of the rapture, Jesus said this also, Luke 17 He said, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. The point is this, that moment when the rapture is happening and every believer hears a trumpet blast. The idea is if you're looking around to grab stuff, it's already too late. You're not going to be taken. Because if you're looking around trying to grab stuff, 
it means your treasure is not in heaven. It's here on the earth. The believer in that moment is like, let's go. Let's go. The person who's treasure on earth is like, uh, uh, you know, can I take this with me? That's what, that's what they're doing. And it reveals your true heart. Lot's wife lived with believers. She lived in the household of the believer. Everyone assumed she was part of the family. But remember when the angels came to visit how she didn't prepare the meal? It tells us something. She didn't recognize them as angels. She didn't recognize them. She did not recognize what God was doing because she wasn't saved. In the same way, Jesus told us, he said, listen, there are many people alive today who think they're saved but are not. And the way you know is that their treasure is on earth. That's where their treasure is. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven and that we should store up treasure there because that's where we're going. But the person who thinks they're saved but isn't says, well, I'll just build up treasure down here and make that my focus for now. It reveals their true heart where their affections really lie. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. Do you remember from last week how Jesus said that the signs that mark the end times will get more and more intense? He said they'll be like birth pangs, like contractions. The idea is there's something, they're pretty far apart, and as time goes past, they get closer and closer together. They get more and more intense. The days of Lot are just one of those signs. There'll be a specific behavior, a specific sin. We know it's going to be homosexuality. It'll be taught as normal to the young and the old. It'll be widespread and culturally accepted. The group who participates in this sin will demand acceptance from the believer. They'll be struck with a physical infirmity that will affect both the young and old, but it won't make them repent. In fact, it'll just make them pursue their lifestyle even more aggressively. Jesus, remember, in the Olivet Discourse, he says, pay attention to when the fig tree comes back to life. We talked about why the fig tree is a picture of Israel. We saw Israel become a nation again in 1948 after almost 2,000 years of not being a nation. It's unprecedented in history. Jesus said, the generation that sees this, this is the first message we talked about in this series, the generation that sees Israel become a nation again, that generation won't die out before I come back again. And so this is how you study the end times in the Bible. You look at these signs and he gives us the generation and then he gives us these other signs like the days of Lot and you begin working through time And this is so important because we've all heard people say, yeah, but you know, every generation thought they were the last. 50 years ago, were there gay pride parades? Were there gay books handed out in school? Were there gay TV shows? Was it widely accepted? Were you considered a bigot if you held another view? This is a unique time in history, very unique. And as you begin to look at all the signs that the Bible gives us about the end times, you begin to realize it it couldn't have been really any other time because no other time period meets all the requirements laid out by scripture for the end times jesus said for the generation that sees israel become a nation he says i am at the doors the idea is his hand is on the doorknob he's that close because the truth is you can't be in labor forever you can't be in labor forever i want to encourage you to to read the bible for yourself to study this for yourself to recognize the signs and to make sure that you're ready for the return of jesus And here's what I mean by that. If the thought of the rapture doesn't excite you, you need to ask yourself why. You need to ask yourself why. It's a very good indicator that that maybe your treasure, maybe your focus, maybe your dreams and your longings are all here. Remember Lot's wife. So let's talk about this in closing because I just felt like 
if we're going to talk about this, we, we can't talk about what our response should be to, to the rise of gay rights and the gay movement, the LGBT movement in our culture. And I feel like whatever I'm going to say is going to be very incomplete, very incomplete. So I hope you hear my heart. Uh, I want to just share some points with you on how we should respond to this. The first thing, the beginning view is this, what I think is irrelevant. What you think is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. The only thing that is relevant is what God thinks. That is the beginning and the end for the believer's stance on every issue. My opinion is irrelevant and so is yours. So be careful that you're not caught saying, you know, I think because what you think doesn't really matter. I say that in all kindness. That's an acknowledgement of who God is. That's not a slam on you. And I know that's a shocking truth in the age of Facebook, <laughs> right? You know, But our opinion is actually not that important. God says this lifestyle and behavior is sin. That's where we start. We believe it's sin. Don't be confused about that. Let me just say this. If your God changes based upon the values of your culture and society, do not deceive yourself. He is not a God. He is an invention of your own imagination designed to your description. If your God changes based on where you are and what your culture is, you are self-deceived if you are calling that thing God. Because if he's God, he's not changing. And if he's God, he doesn't really care about anybody else's opinions. Let's just be honest about it. So don't deceive yourself and say, well, maybe God was one way another time, but now he's this way. The Bible says God doesn't change. He doesn't change. Write this down. Sexual sin is different. I I want to unpack this a little bit. Because one of the things you'll always hear is, you, you know, being gay is just practicing a homosexual lifestyle is just like any other sin. It's not because it's in the category of sexual sin. Paul tells us that all sexual sin, including heterosexual sin, is in a different class. Paul says he who sins sexually sins against his own body. There's something different about it. And I think one of the best ways I can explain this is that nobody ever sits down and battles in their mind going back and replaying an awesome lie that they told, right? Nobody sits down and is like, oh man, That was a hot lie. Oh yeah, that was a hot lie. Nobody ever does that. When you sin sexually, you battle even the memories of what you've done. That becomes a battle because it's a sin against yourself. There's something internal about it. It creates future struggle. We all know, even though we might not be able to articulate it, there's something different about the power of sexual sin compared to stealing, lying, all kinds of things. We know that. We understand that. So don't buy into the lie that it's just like any other sin. It includes heterosexual sin as well. But sexual sin is not like any other sin. You know, you know if, if any believer came to you and said, you know, my thing is that I look at porn all the time. Or, you know, my thing is that I, I sleep around a lot. None of us as believers should respond to those statements with, well, <laughs> who am I to judge? I'm just a sinner. I told a lie this morning. You know, the same is true for people who claim to be believers but practice homosexuality. It's sexual sin. It's no different to a guy saying, I I look at porn all the time. Jesus said that we are to judge those inside the church. We're not to judge those outside. He says, that's his job. Jesus said, don't ever expect a non-believer to act like a believer. And even in this area, the reason for that is it doesn't do them any good to go to hell straight doesn't do him any good, right? So the reason 
what Jesus says is he says, people who are lost need one thing. They need the gospel. They need Jesus. Don't concern yourself with their behavior because their behavior has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. Step one is the gospel. They need Jesus before anything else. That's the first step. It's not fix yourself, then come to Jesus. It's come to Jesus, and Jesus does the work. That's how it works. But we are called to judge those inside the church. When someone inside the church says, hey, the Bible says don't judge, it's not true. The Bible says we're supposed to hold each other to the standard of Jesus. We're supposed to look at each other and say, hey, remember, you represent Jesus. You're not just representing yourself. You're representing Jesus. So you can't do that. You can't be in the homosexual lifestyle. You can't be addicted to porn. It's not okay. We, we represent Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Thirdly, being born, this is huge, being born with a predisposition toward a specific sin doesn't exempt you from God's standards. Being born with a predisposition toward a specific sin doesn't exempt you from God's standards. It doesn't make you special. Can we, uh, can we get real for a minute? Let's get, let's get really real, okay? Most of us as guys hit, I don't know, 11, 12, 13, and we realize that we may have a predisposition towards lusting after women. Which woman? All of them. <laughs> it hits, and we just realize this is going to be an issue. It's going to be an issue. And the truth is, for me, like most guys, I'm born with that predisposition. What I mean is, don't believe me when, if I stand up here and say, hey guys, I, I just want to share a testimony, you know. Uh, I've fully conquered lust. It's just not a temptation anymore for me. I, I have ascended to a higher spiritual level, and I'm immune to temptation now. As your pastor, I just wanted to let you know that so that uh, you could aspire to be like me. Don't buy it, if I ever say that. Don't buy it. And, and what would your response be if I said, you know what, church, I've, I've realized that I battle lust uh, because I, I was born this way. God made me this way. And so I've come to the conclusion that if this is the way God made me, then he must want me to pursue this. So uh, I've taken on two mistresses, and uh, I'm here to tell you that porn is okay. If that's the way that God has made you, if he's made you to want that, would you say that my logic is scripturally sound? Probably not. Probably not. I want to point this out. You know that from a mental health perspective, there are many sociopaths and psychopaths who were born that way. They really were. There is a, there is a miswiring in their brains. Something is off. But none of us would say, it's not his fault he kills people. He was born that way. He was born that way. And, and who, who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we all battle besetting sins. I don't know what your personal theology is, but when I look at Scripture, when I look at guys like Paul, Paul's a lot more spiritual than any of us. I think we all agree on this, okay? Paul battles besetting sins is what they're called. They're these sins that just don't go away. He battles them for his whole life till the day he dies. We're not in our resurrected bodies yet. This isn't our eternal bodies. Most of us are like, thank God for that. But there are sins we're going to battle in these bodies till the day that we die. And what I mean by that is there are some sins that you won't overcome completely. You will win the war every day by the power of Jesus. But when you wake up the next day, the war is still going on and it still needs to be fought. 
I can't imagine how difficult it must be to have same-sex attraction be your besetting sin. I can't imagine. I know how hard it is as a guy just to deal with lust. I, I can't imagine how difficult that must be. And I'm not here to make light of it. What I am here to say is that whether your issue is same-sex attraction, whether it's lust, whether it's lying or jealousy or covetedness, none of us are excused from the fight just because we were born that way. We all have to fight our besetting sins. We all have to fight because all of us were born with issues. And all of us were raised by parents who have issues. So we have issues. And we'll have issues till the day we die. But we can win the battle every day by the power of Jesus. But Satan's lie is to say, if you were born that way, you should just give in to it. Just give in to it. Fourthly, I'd say don't protest the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Don't protest the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. You know, Jesus, when he said all these things, he told the disciples, he said, listen, when these things happen, don't be afraid. They have to take place. What this means is it's a waste of time for any believer to post things on Facebook to try and change the direction of culture. This might be controversial, but I think we should stand for Jesus, but I don't think the trend of culture is going to be reversed. In fact, Jesus tells us, the, the, the pattern the Bible gives is things get worse and then we get raptured before the bottom falls out. There's no massive revival or political movement that turns things up. So don't let yourself be found in the place where what you're really protesting are the things that Jesus said would happen. Jesus is gonna win that out. They're gonna happen. You and I are not going to stop them We're called to represent Jesus in our little corner of the world, in our home, in our work. We're called to represent Jesus in the gospel. You know, do you understand that rationally, I really believe this, rationally, there's no reason to not allow polygamy if you allow gay marriage. If you're being rational, I'll explain. The basis for gay marriage is this. If consenting adults want to define their relational life in whatever way they want, they should be allowed to do that because they are consenting adults who love each other. I don't think I've misrepresented the logic behind gay marriage. If, if that is an accepted logic, logically, why would you not allow polygamy? There is no logical reason. There's no logical reason. And so I want to let you know that, that that's where society is going to go next. You can, you can write it down. Start looking for TV shows, especially TV comedies, any day that make light of the situation. Because logically... There's no reason to not allow it. There's no reason, once you open the door to say, marriage and relationship should be defined as whatever people want them to be. I think, what did Facebook come out with now? If you go into the custom settings, they have 28 different sexual orientations you can choose from. Facebook came out with it just a month ago. 20, I can't even come up with 28. I'm like, man, I gotta read this list just to find out what's going on in the world. So Jesus said the signs of the last day would accelerate and become more and more intense. If you still think, yeah, but every generation thought they were the last one. If you still think that, you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention. And if we believe that one is born with a sexual predisposition, then logically, logically, why would we limit it to just being gay? So if you're going to say being born with a sexual predisposition is justification to live in that lifestyle, why would you limit it to being gay? I don't think you logically can. 
Let me explain. The American Psychiatric Association said they believe that they will soon discover not only a homosexual gene in the human genome, but also a gene that explains what is now being called minor attracted persons. In May 2013, they released the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which described pedophilia as a sexual orientation. According to the manual, we shouldn't call them pedophiles, but instead minor attracted persons. It's just the way they are. It's in their brain chemistry. It's just the way they were born. Using pure logic, you can't draw a dividing line and argue that it's okay to be gay if you're born that way, but not to do other things if you're born that way. That's where society is moving. That's where it's going. And so we shouldn't get worked up or protest it. What we should actually do is you read it in God's word, and what should happen is you, you should go, wow, the God of the universe called this thousands of years in advance. He predicted it. He knew it was coming. And if he knew that was coming and he called it perfectly, then I can put my trust and confidence in him saying he's going to take care of me during that time. Don't just read the parts that scare you. Read the parts that fill you with hope. So when I look at this stuff, I don't get worked up. What I say is, man, his hand is on the doorknob. He is right there. And I can't wait for what happens next. I can't wait. The Bible makes it clear that sin's going to get worse and his plan for dealing with the situation is removing the church from the earth in the rapture. That's his plan. It's not revival. It's not political upheaval. His plan is to remove the church from the earth. Fifthly, don't be like Lot in the area of credibility. Don't be like Lot in the area of credibility. So immersed in the culture that no one took him seriously when he started speaking about spiritual matters. You know, if, if your entertainment choices look just like everybody else's, don't expect your kids to grow up on fire for God. If you are immersed in this culture, don't expect to really impact anybody else because our children need to understand that they're different. They do. They need to understand they're different. You and I need to understand we're different. The Bible says our citizenship is not on earth. It's in heaven. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different country. That's where we're going. Don't be uncredible like Lot. Lastly, let's say this. Be more concerned with offending God than offending people. Be much more concerned and afraid of offending God than offending people. You know, if you're a Christian, you need to know there won't always be the perfect answer. Let's just be honest. On this issue, aren't we all looking for the perfect answer? And here's the perfect answer, right? Uh, the perfect answer is when I don't have to compromise my faith, but they still perceive me as loving and tolerant. That's the answer we're really all after, right? We're like, can you give that to me in one sentence, please? That would be great. I need to let you know, according to what the Bible says about where we're going, you will not always be able to find a perfect answer. You won't always be able to find a perfect answer. There, there is a great deception sweeping through the modern church, and it, it sounds something like this. If you're like Jesus, if you're living like Jesus, everyone will be drawn to you. Everyone will like you. Anybody heard that sort of logic before? It's really nice, but it sort of skips out on the part that they killed Jesus. And they didn't kill him for being a great guy. They killed Jesus because they didn't want him as their king. They didn't want him as their Lord. 
They didn't want him as their God. They killed Jesus. Don't forget that. Jesus, in fact, said this. He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Jesus says, listen, if everybody likes you, it means you're not telling the truth. That's what it means. Those are the words of Jesus. We live for his approval above anybody else's, and we have to be more concerned with offending him than offending other people. Here's, here's the bottom line. We're called to love others regardless of their lifestyle. We're not called to judge non-believers. Scripture says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. On the flip side, we are called to not approve of sin, even from non-believers. That means if a non-believer says, do you believe this is sin, you don't lie and go, I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. Yeah, I do that. <laughs> We're called to be honest about what God's word says when asked. We're called to hold to God's standards in the church. That means we recognize it as sin. It doesn't mean you can't come to church if you deal with same-sex attraction. It just means that you're called to confront it just as the heterosexual Christian is called to confront their besetting sexual sins. So if you're here today, and I promise this is the last thing we're going to say, if you're here today or or, or listening online to this message and and you deal with same-sex attraction, this is what I would say. I I know it's difficult. I know it's still awkward in the church. I know that you would probably love to confess to a porn addiction rather than a same-sex attraction. Uh, I, I know that. But I want you to know that this is a safe place to confront your sin. I'm not going to do an altar call where I ask you to stand on your chair if you deal with this. We're not going to do that. Uh, My plea is this. My my plea is do something. Get help. Now, I I told you, I'm a guy. I deal with sexual lust because I'm a guy. So so I got help. I, I put up protections and accountability in my life. But in order to do that, I had to be honest. And the truth is it only works if I keep being honest. It's the only thing that keeps it working. Darkness only has power in darkness. When you bring something into the light, it immediately begins decreasing in power. And if you're dealing with this issue, I'd love to talk with you anytime, anywhere. You can email me. We'll keep it anonymous. I'd want you to know Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He has an eternal plan for your life. And this is huge. Your identity is not the sin that you're battling. Did you catch that? You, You do not define yourself by your temptation. I'd say this, I'm so thankful for AA and the millions of people they have helped, but there's one area in which I think we would be different. That's because AA defines you by your temptation. My name is Jeff and I'm an alcoholic. Jesus would say, no, you define yourself as a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's your identity. That other thing is your temptation. It's your struggle, but it's not your identity. Your identity is child of God. That's important because there's no power in your temptation. There's no power in it. But there's unlimited, conquering, overcoming power in the name of Jesus. And you're never without hope when you define yourself as a child of God, ever. Whatever you're facing, he's greater. And the power that you need to overcome your temptation today is freely available through Jesus. It's freely available through Jesus.